Welcome to the Big Ten on Radio Boise, KRBX 89.9 FM, Caldwell, Boise. Uh, I'm your co-host today, Luke Fowler, here with my other co-hosts, Jen Schneider and Corey Cook, and we're all from the School of Public Service at Boise State. Um, and so we got an exciting show today. We're going to talk about scooters and disruptive technology and such. Um, and such. And such. And such. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't know really what we're going to talk about, so I'm just going to uh, follow along here as best I can. Um, yeah, Jen. Well, we are, we are excited to talk about scooters because, like Luke said, it is a disruptive technology. And particularly as people who study politics and policy, we want to think about how cities and municipalities are introducing these technologies, how they're having to change the way they do things, how they're regulating these technologies. And scooters may seem like a silly example, but I think it's going to tell us a lot about how cities handle things like autonomous vehicles, for example, which have the potential to be extremely disruptive. And so later Later in the show, Corey, we're going to have a guest who is a real expert in this area. That's right. We're going to have Alexis Madrigal, who is a writer for The Atlantic. Uh, his uh, expertise is in is in technology, technology policy. Uh, he wrote for Wired magazine um, and a number of sort of journalism startups. He he teaches part time at, at UC Berkeley and is a fellow at Harvard. Uh, in addition to uh, in the middle of writing a book about uh, Oakland and technology and Oakland politics, he has an interesting podcast I recommend around containers. Uh, Oakland is a container city because it's a it's a port city and oh like shipping containers, shipping containers. Huh. and and so he has a eight part podcast on containers in Oakland. Um, which that is, sounds like such a boring topic. Oh my god, it's fascinating. Well, really? he's a, he's a tr- incredible storyteller. Yeah. So I'm excited. This is the first time we're trying to actually have a a call in guest. So this is the first non live in studio guest. It's a new year, y'all. Right. So <laughs> talk about disruptive technologies. We're going to be using the Telephone, telephone folks so <laughs> well let's talk a little bit about our very own city here Boise and the introduction of scooters here we've talked a little bit about um, our own use of scooters on on the show before but um, Corey from your perspective was the city of Boise were they seeing this coming were they preparing for it what did that look like so Boise wasn't one of the first wave of cities that had scooters just sort of dropped off it was more in California it yeah. was more in California and mm-hmm. Seattle and so I think the the horror stories that we heard from from the from the coasts were essentially cities that were experiencing literally thousands of these show up <laughs> one day on um, already busy streets on already busy streets yeah. without any regulations around them without any place of I mean these are dockless scooters so no notion of where they'd be maintained or how it would work. Uh, folks who suddenly have a new gig picking up scooters, throwing them in the back of their car and taking them home to charge. It just sort of arrived overnight. And a lot of cities sort of struggled with how to address that. The city of Boise uh, essentially adopted a policy allowing three scooter companies to come into town. They created three permitting permits that could be applied for, with each company being allowed up to 250 scooters. Uh, They've treated them essentially like bicycles. So in terms of where they can be used and how they can be ridden, they're essentially uh, thought of as as akin to bicycles in the city of Boise. But they've capped the number in the city at 750, which it's interesting folks you talk to either will say, yeah, because they're everywhere and 750 is this incredibly large number. And other folks saying, they're kind of where you need them to be, but they aren't really at that nuisance stage. And there's some photos of, of, of coastal cities um, sort of that 
have typically these funny headings of parks with literally hundreds of them just lying in the middle of the park. Uh, we're not experiencing that, certainly in Boise. Yeah, I, I'm surprised to hear that they're capped at 750 because living very near downtown, it feels to me like they're everywhere. And yet, um, I travel a fair amount to go to conferences and things like that during uh, during the year. And going to some of these larger cities, the scale at which they exist in those larger cities like so much bigger than what we have in Boise. Though I will say that uh, from my experience and since we're in downtown I would say all 750 are probably within 100 yards of this building uh, because it just seems like they're super concentrated here Um, and so when you go out of course to uh, uh, Garden City you just kind of go to some of the ancillary parts of the city they're not there so it just seems like they're all around downtown and campus. Yeah I mean it definitely seems like that although I've been noticing more and more that they're up in the Vista neighborhood they're out on Park Center and you mentioned Corey earlier that also Meridian, which is a you know city outside Boise, uh, embraced scooters early on, but without the sort of restrictions that that Boise had. Yeah, I think you know Meridian's uh, really transit def- has a real transit deficit, and so I think initially the city of Meridian just. I saw this as an alternative uh, way of doing the sort of the first and last mile problem, uh, and and allowing people either whether it's getting on a on a bus or some other way of getting around that this might be a solution to some some, some to fill in those issues. gaps. So if I yep. if I it takes me like maybe I'm a mile from the bus stop I need to take I could take a scooter to get to my bus stop, take the bus to work, and then maybe it's a mile to my place of work or something. Is that what you mean? Exactly. By those gaps. And, okay. and in a lot of a lot of cities that have uh, you know fixed rail or other uh, you know fixed infrastructure that's the, the growing challenge is is, is transportation uh, is fixed and the population mobility has changed whether mm-hmm. it's you know in the Bay Area where you know the the transportation you should challenge used to be getting people from the suburbs into San Francisco and now San Francisco has become <coughs> a bedroom community for Silicon Valley you, you, you can't move those rail lines and so how do you change those transportation patterns so whether it's us sort of the environment in which uber and lyft and these other places things have sprung up ways of getting people to a train line or to a, a, a bus a bus route and so that sort of the mile between maybe where you live and, and where you might access public transit is really complicated and so i think in that environment whether it's these sh- you know shared car services or whether it's electric bikes which was a craze that lasted all about six months in a lot of cities, uh, and now scooters. I think it's you know these these efforts to use technology to address this first and last mile challenge. So uh, we've talked a little bit on the show before about how, as users, Luke and I have <laughs> ridden scooters. Luke likes to ride them for seven or eight miles. <laughs> Apparently, okay. I like for shorter trips. They're super efficient, and they do solve some of those problems, especially for those of us on campus. It's an easy way to get across campus quickly or to get to meetings. Um but what are some of the, the challenges that scooters pose for cities and for folks who are not scooter riders? Well, and so as a user, uh, and Jen's correct, I do ride it for several miles, so I've read it <laughs> to get home. But, you know, it is convenient when we have uh, meetings across campus. I'll, I'll say I was leaving class one night, and it was like 20 degrees, and I was like, look, I can be really cold for 15 minutes walking back to my car, or I can be I can be kind of cold, or I can be really cold for the five minutes on the scooter, so I take the scooter, right? Um, so it's really convenient in that way. But I, I think there's a lot of challenges we talked about earlier with like liability issues um but it really is as kind of Corey highlights and talking about rail it's where these things fit into our current systems right and because as you would imagine
imagine we don't go back and redevelop our entire transportation systems, all our institutions, all our organizations every time a new technology comes along so we have to try to fit this in. And so like what always scares me, I guess, as a user uh, of those, but also as like a driver is when people have these things out in the roads, right? I'm just like, I'm going to hit this person or I'm going to get hit by a car. Um, so it's those type of things that I, I don't think we've got figured out well enough is how this works at the individual level. Yeah. So it seems like uh, safety is getting a lot of coverage on these things. A lot of them sort of use the gig. These companies use the gig economy to book mechanics who are maybe not very well trained on making sure that scooters are actually safe. So you could potentially get on a scooter that or the brakes don't work. And if you're uh, blowing out into traffic, <laughs> that's that's scary. Um, I think access is also an issue. So you have a lot of folks with disabilities who find that scooters are blocking, um, you know, their access to sidewalks or to parking. Those are some concerns I've uh, heard as well. Yeah. So in, so in the piece in the Atlantic that Alexis Madrigal wrote, he he talks about the individual benefits that accrue to scooter users and the ability to have this flexibility. Essentially, we've crowdsourced this component of our of our of our mobility system, right? That that they show up where they show up because that's where the people are. That's where they pick them up. I mean, these these uh, scooter companies are are obviously savvy about where people will take them and where they drop them off. It's like the market's working. Right. The market's working. Yeah. And so it's individually. I think quite beneficial to the scooter user. On the other hand, it has some sort of public externalities that aren't quite as positive, like inaccessibility of, of sidewalks or um, you know streets that were simply not designed to accommodate scooters where they don't have bike paths or other things that are now accommodating folks who are going you know relatively high speeds on a stand-up scooter device that as, as, as Luke noted as you're as you're driving next to them you see somebody going without 12, a helmet without a helmet going 12 miles an hour um, where there isn't a bike path it, it, it's somewhat disconcerting as a driver and if you're not used to driving them it can kind of be a little dangerous right, right. Uh, if you're not a uh, very uh, agile and uh, know what you're doing or if it makes you tap into your inner kid and you don't make <laughs> such good choices on them. right so the scooters first launched at Boise right around uh, Halloween and of course the first story was a story of somebody dressed to apparently as a blow-up dinosaur costume. As who, you do. We, we, right. I mean, that's sort of... <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty normal to me. Yeah, so yeah, so far, nothing unusual about that story. Um, but then crashing into a pedestrian on, yeah. on Halloween. Um, it is that, you know, the fun of being a kid riding your scooter as a, as a grown person wearing a dinosaur costume. Uh, but they're pedestrians, and there are other folks out there. And so, again, how cities manage the, the liability, how they manage the safety issues, uh, with a technology that seems like it creates all this personal freedom and mobility can also create some real public policy challenges. And Corey, just in the, in the last minute, do you have a sense of what um, these sorts of challenges and how cities are meeting them might mean also for how cities are going to introduce autonomous vehicles, which is sort of the next big technological step in transportation? that we anticipate. Yeah, so we have some cities that are doing demonstration projects already. Um, you know, we're, we're talking about that exact thing in Idaho. The governor had a commission on autonomous vehicles and recommended some some test sites uh, in Idaho to look at how that would play out. Obviously, there are a lot of regulatory issues. There are a lot of technology issues. How do you ensure, for example, the cybersecurity? So in autonomous vehicles, how do you make sure they can't be hacked? Yeah, uh, which is a... Turn them is, into weapons or something. Right, like that. which yeah. is a real, you know, 
issue that you don't think about, right, as it relates to, you know, uh, you know most vehicles have some autonomous features currently, whether that's, um, you know, rear parking assist or letting you know when you change lanes. But these fully autonomous vehicles, um, you know, how to make, sh- make make sure that they're safe and secure, where an autonomous vehicle has an accident, who's, who's responsible for that accident. Um, and so, you know, in addition to the technological challenges, there are a lot of policy and legal issues that jurisdictions, states, cities are going to be addressing as these things unfold. All right. Well, we're going to ask you to stay tuned. When we get back from the break, we have um, this special guest who's going to talk to us about exactly how cities are handling some of these disruptive technologies. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Tent. Uh, okay. So we're, we're joined by our, our guest, Alexis Madrigal. He's a, a staff writer for The Atlantic and uh, has done a lot of, he's a journalist who's done just a lot of work. As, uh, you, you've probably come across one of his pieces. He writes about uh, the impact of technology on cities. He's, he's completed uh, a, a book uh, looking at, at uh, green uh, technology and, and is doing a, a, a project uh, focusing on the city of Oakland. Um, Alexis, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we want to talk with you about um, sort of your take on on uh, how the scooter technology came to cities. And I think you focused in the piece in the Atlantic on San Francisco, but how that disrupted cities and their transportation infrastructure and your sense of, I think, this trade-off between individual mobility and sort of the public good. And uh, I thought you handled that extremely well in the piece. And as, as the city of Boise and Meridian and our surrounding communities are addressing uh, this, this notion of scooters as ways of solving the first and last mile problem, we're also addressing some of those externalities. So I, I'd love to, to ask you to talk, talk us through a little bit of your, your thoughts about you know, the, the rise of electric scooters and how they're sort of reshaping the way we live and work in cities. Sure. So for people who haven't seen them or haven't ridden on them, you know, it's just a scooter with a with a battery on it, um, and I am extremely interested in what happens when you sort of bolt a battery uh, and a little electric motor onto any mode of transportation. Um, the scooter is kind of like the simplest possible implementation of that, right? Um, and the question is, like, that's the technology, but what's the sort of system that goes around that, and how does it interact with the sort of city as it already exists? And what happened in the Bay, and it happened in a lot of different places, is that basically the scooter companies, of which there are a few, Lime and Bird and and others, Skip, um, they kind of deployed um, all at once. Um, And what that meant was one day there were no scooters on the street, and the next day, there were tons of scooters on the street, um, and not just in the street, but on the sidewalk and like running down old people and being left all over the place and thrown you know, in the river. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Teenagers stealing them and throwing them into Lake Merritt or throw, you know, like just there were all of these things that happened, um, and the it became immediately clear that the system around these scooters was not working yet. And the scooters might be working well for the bike ride, for the scooter riders themselves, like the people, you know, zooming around, but it wasn't working well for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, the title of your piece is that the San Francisco scooter war is over and the scooters won. How did the scooters win? Well, I mean, people really like them. <laughs> right. The people, the people who are on them 
uh, people really, it's an enjoyable experience. I mean, as someone who has ridden one, it's like slightly terrifying, kind of in the way a skateboard can feel terrifying. Um, but it's actually easier, substantially easier than skateboarding. Yeah. And it kind of solves this problem that lots of cities have, which is like you get off the bus or you're at a friend's house and you're like a mile and a half or two miles away from home. You don't have a bike with you. Like, you just walk outside, look at your phone. There's a scooter that's two blocks away. You go hop on it, and you're home literally in like two minutes. So, oftentimes I'll be getting off the the BART here, you know, the train, and it's you know 15 minute walk to my house, and I have five minutes to get there before our childcare runs out. I'm there. I'm there in three minutes on one of these scooters because they go at least here uh, 50 miles an hour, and so you know it's just this wondrous new way of getting around the city. Of course. They're dangerous. People don't wear helmets. You're supposed to ride in the street, but people ride in the sidewalks. There's all these downsides, but uh, the actual service that it provides is like nothing else. You don't have to wait for a bus. You're on your own schedule. You don't have to call a car, and it costs like two bucks or three bucks. So it's you know it's one of these technologies that serves a particular need so well that it's pretty hard to to hold back, particularly when these big uh, mobility companies that are funded by venture capitalists and have hundreds of millions of dollars want to deploy them somewhere. So, Alexis, you mentioned that, you know, from the city's perspective, this poses some challenges. And one of the things we were talking about uh, before the break was safety, which you just mentioned, uh, maybe accessibility for folks who have uh, disabilities and scooters are blocking their access, things like that. What are the other um, major concerns that cities have had as these things have come on the scene? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a few different things. I mean, there's just the sort of like trash element. There's the sort of like... Who do you call if a scooter is blocking a sidewalk? Um, like, I don't know. In a lot of cases in the old days, it's not like most tech companies, like the people who have deployed these, have like a number that's like 1 800 move this F scooter. <laughs> you know, that's like, not something that like is there. Uh, and so companies have had to sort of like uh, adapt on that side. And the city of San Francisco ran a process which selected. Uh, a couple uh, companies which, A, hadn't deployed uh, ahead of regulations being in place in the city, uh, and B, um, uh, that sort of committed to a very public plan, uh, in particular investing in the infrastructure of bike lanes. Because one of the funny things about this is that the second you get on a scooter in a bike lane that's protected, you go, oh man, this is amazing. The second you're in a street with cars in where a bike normally goes, but where there's no bike lane, oh man, it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the sort of funny things about scooters is they may help push people towards just agreeing that the street is for more than cars and that cities should invest in the infrastructure that that allows other types of wheeled vehicles to, to go on the road safely. Um, so those are, those are a couple of things. I mean, that's a really interesting thing I hadn't uh, thought about before. And if you talk to city planners in any sort of up-and-coming or established metropolitan area, they're really trying to push that idea of that that cars aren't shouldn't necessarily be prioritized or sort of that cities shouldn't be built around making life easier for cars necessarily. And so when you just said that, it made me think, wow, that's another way in which this could be really disruptive for how we organize, plan, regulate cities and transportation. 
Oh, yeah. I, and I think, you know, sort of like electric bikes. I mean, they're actually very similar. And looking at how and why the electric bikes or even just bike shares in general generated not no resistance here, but a different kind of resistance, I think it's really instructive. Mm. Like people know what a bike is. They know how a bike moves. They know sort of the logic of the bike rider, at least kind of. Um, and they know where bikes go when you're not using them. Um, like with the Jump Bikes, which is an electric bike company mm-hmm. in San Francisco, you just attach them to a normal bike thing. Here in Oakland, we have the Ford Go Bike program, which, you know, there are stations where you uh, pick up and drop off the electric bikes. And one of the things that's really interesting about that is that there's sort of a culture, not really a technology, but a culture of, of knowledge and understanding of what to do when someone is on one of these vehicles. Um, and that wasn't true for scooters. And so one of the things that's really interesting is the development of a kind of culture of courtesy or something around like, what do I do with my scooter when I'm done with it? You know, Uh, like when I arrive at my house now, I put it in one particular spot. Our next door neighbors who are a bunch of college kids who go to Cal at first, they left them just right in the sidewalk, just, you know, blocking everybody and everything. And all it took was a saying like, Hey guys, we love these scooters too. And I'm going to take that one right now, but can you just like move them (laughs) off of the sidewalk? And now they always move them off the sidewalk and it was sort of like problem solved, you know? Um, But the thing is that requires kind of this distributed citizen action. It requires like the companies to try and like ping riders to not do that. And one thing Lime does, for example, is you take a look, you take a photo of where you've left the scooter. Yeah. Um, And one thing that's nice about that is it just, it's kind of this, you know, behavioral design kind of thing where you go, oh, wait, maybe that's actually not a good place now that I'm looking at where I left it, you know. Um, and, and sometimes in in, past, in fact, I've even moved it to a, a place where it's less in the way. Um, so I think we'll see more of those things. There's also a, a company that's trying to build models of curbs. Like, mm-hmm. oh, like what is, you know, all the all this stuff that's sort of the sidewalk and it's sort of the street, like everything in between that little spot there, they're trying to map all that stuff, which might allow the scooter companies to say, please drop it off here in this particular part of the, uh, you know, the, the curb. So, so you mentioned that um, you know these these scooter companies were largely backed by venture capital money, and, and it, it struck I think a lot of folks that the initial launch was was somewhat similar to sort of how Uber launched, that it just sort of was everywhere mm-hmm. and it's this sort of unregulated environment. Um, sort of politically, did you see that sort of backlash that it was essentially a backlash to sort of Uber and and that sort of approach to disruptive technology, or was it sort of more particular about the the actual you know, mode of transportation? Well, I think, you know, um, I think the backlash was substantially stronger than against the early Uber days. So Uber days, one thing that's interesting is like local officials were annoyed, but like, and and cab drivers and, you know, medallion holders uh, within, you know, taxi cab kind of consortia. But like normal people were not annoyed by, mm-hmm. I mean, who who is annoyed by a few Ubers moving around, you know? Now, in the Bay, where a substantial percentage of passenger traffic is traveling in one, it's possible to be annoyed by Uber. <laughs> but uh, in the early days, it didn't really work like that. It didn't go from zero to ubiquity in mm-hmm. certain places. Um, and even when they were, and people have learned the lesson of if you let one of these companies do whatever they want, 
they will just continue doing whatever they want, regardless of how that fits in with the social goals of the city. Um, and, you know, I, I think that there is an increasing comfort among a lot of people with trying to foster the right kind of innovation within cities, not just any kind of innovation within cities. You know, it's not just that, like, deploying a technology is necessarily a good thing. Mm. Um, Now, I think people understand, like, no, we actually can do things which disrupt the way that our city works in ways that are bad, not just good, you know. (laughs) And so I do think that was a big part of it. And that just, I mean, we're talking like, there were hundreds and hundreds of like little micro incidents around the scooters, mm-hmm. you know, and it and 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 they were deployed like fairly evenly across like different political groups and areas of the city, and so it wasn't just the kind of thing where it was deployed and and only like powerless groups, you know, like an environmental injustice kind of situation happened. <laughs> it was sort of like the scooters went to the rich people's neighborhood too because rich people like the scooters. Mm-hmm. And that meant that rich people had scooters left in their front yards and dumped, you know, in the street and all that. So so it was a really interesting, you know, hopefully somebody will go do a big like political science paper uh, <laughs> looking at the complaints around scooters because uh, they got action quick. Um, when they started going to the fancy neighborhood. Interesting. Alexis, one of the things I've been paying attention to is how um, environmentalists with a big E have been thinking about scooters. And I think, you know, one of their early selling points was that they might be sort of greener, of course, than taking another automobile trip. So taking your two-mile scooter trip might be uh, better from a fossil fuel perspective than taking an Uber. Um, But then I think there's been some interesting counter arguments in terms of, well, what if it displaces people who might have otherwise walked or biked, and now we're in an electric infrastructure, which, of course, often can rely on fossil fuels. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, I I mean, I think those are all valid concerns. Like, these are, like, complex systems, and uh, when you introduce, uh, it's certainly, in my case, it has displaced some bike riding, Um, and I think that that's not uncommon. Um, I think that, you know, for me, I'm less worried about that. It's kind of like we're, we're kind of arguing about what, like, 2% of people are going to do when, like, all these other passenger cars, all these other trips are, you know, happening in cars. Yeah. And I, the thing that worries me is that it displaces and destabilizes transit. Um, that's certainly something that um, has come up with Uber and Lyft in recent years yeah. that when these these companies move into a city, it reduces uh, transit ridership just as it was really beginning to grow. And there may be a lot of reasons for that. You know, these companies have, I'm not sure how much to trust, like all the kind of metrics about who's responsible for what in terms of uh, transit ridership. But it's pretty clear that for going a couple miles, which is oftentimes what people do on a bus, uh, the scooter, if it's, if it's possible, is like way faster and fun. Um, and and in a way that, you know, depending on your politics, it could be good or bad. It's also an incredibly atomized experience. You know, there's nothing communal about the scooter ride, you know, in a way that there is about the bus. Um, and that may have, you know, lasting repercussions as well. 
So it's been interesting to me to see how quickly cities have adapted to to scooters. And so you know, we talked about Boise being sort of a second generation city in that the city just issued um, three permits to scooter companies to allow scooters to come in. Essentially, the regulation led before the scooters arrived. Obviously, cities like San Francisco, Oakland, Portland, Seattle, the scooters arrived first. Um, how do you think the cities sort of responded? Like, how, are, are, were they able to put the genie back in the bottle? Were the regulations sort of, you know, it, uh, obviously designed in response to the emergence of scooters? Did they, were cities able to catch up and make sense out of it, or are they still sort of scrambling with trying to trying to put the genie back in the bottle? Yeah, you know, I actually think they did pretty well. I mean, you know, there's there's an advantage that they have vis-a-vis the scooter companies they didn't have with Uber and Lyft was that they can take the scooters. And just impound those things, which is what they did in San Francisco. Um, and suddenly, when you're taking the company's product off the street, um, you know, they listen to you. And so, you know, the city's had a different kind of leverage in this case. Um, I thought San Francisco's uh, process, um, the, the there's a lot of dispute about the outcome of it. But I thought, you know, forcing the companies to submit a bit, looking at the way that they were going to deploy, how are they going to employ local people, just like all of the things that you would want, a comprehensive plan, um, they, they did ask for that. And the, the thing that's, I think, really important is sometimes think people are like, oh, well, you know, these startups, you don't want to like slow down their like innovation. I mean, it's a battery attached to a scooter. You know what I mean? <laughs> the innovation is the system. Like the mm-hmm. innovation is not the technology in the scooter. The, the innovation is really, can you create a system of scooters that works for everyone in a city, not just the people who ride them? And if you can do that, and the cities actually are a helpful force in helping a bunch of 27-year-old dudes think about all the different kinds of people that the system needs to work for. And so, you know, that's what that's what those people are good at. They're responsive to a variety of citizen concerns from all kinds of different people. And so I actually think in the end, these scooter companies should be thankful to the cities that they help them understand how to deploy their own technology. Because, um, you know, it is, it's a little bit tricky on how do you balance demand, how do you get people to... Uh, how do you incentivize people to uh, charge them and all these other kinds of, you know, operational problems? Um, but, I, I, you know, there's plenty of scooters around and the regulations are coming. And, you know, the, the bigger questions for me are this is going to be a highly seasonal business, particularly in places mm-hmm. like Boise. Um, and can, how do you how do they survive that? Right. Because when it's, you know, zero degrees outside, who wants to be riding a scooter? in like a, you know, uh, I don't know. Right. You know, even at 40 degrees, you know, <laughs> I'm like, oh, it's chilly, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, our, our guest today is Alexis Madrigal. He's the staff writer for The Atlantic. Uh, I just want to encourage our listeners to um, you know listen to your podcast uh, uh, containers, uh, which I, I, I'm through the first couple parts. It's, it's fascinating and incredibly well done. I'm subscribing right now. So uh, also okay. want to <laughs> encourage them to check out your writing in the Atlantic and in other places. Um, really, this intersection of of technology and urbanism and policy is, I think fascinating to a lot of the folks that listen to the Big Tent. If you could just give us another minute, just talk a little bit about um, how you become a sort of, you know, technology writer for the Atlantic. You have a fascinating uh, background and sort of career arc and just let our listeners know a little bit more about you if you would. 
Yeah, sure. I mean, I was a a kind of internet nerd in the 90s growing up in rural Washington State, uh, out in in Richfield on the western part of the state. Um, And then, you know, I went to college, was a fiction writer, actually. And then after college, came back to it, was a uh, analyst looking, writing research reports about different technology things, and then decided that I was going to marry what I was doing in my career with my love of writing. Mm -hmm. And I went to work for uh, Wired Magazine. I wrote about um, energy uh, and science, and then uh, in 2010, I went to the Atlantic uh, to run technology uh, coverage there. When the Atlantic was still kind of a small website, I uh, had only recently, quasi recently, <laughs> dropped monthly from uh, our name, and um, and that was kind of it. You know, I think I going into it through. I wrote a book about the history of green technology. I still love history. I think of myself as kind of like a um, someone who would have been a historian if I knew what it was actually like. <laughs> and uh, it's always been a really interesting perspective on the on the future um, to constantly be going back um, into history and finding how people thought about the deployment of new technologies is really clarifying. You know, it helps you kind of deal with a uh, future shock uh, <laughs> or just this idea that, you know, things are changing like so rapidly. Um, and I think that's always been my perspective, particularly thinking about the kinds of changes that are going to come uh, as a result of climate change and the need to rebuild and retool basically our entire industrial system. Like I spent years of my life uh, thinking about how we built the first uh, system and how it was that um, green technologies failed during that time. Like in the 1890s, we had electric cars. And we didn't use them. And why is that? What was the system that uh, allowed other cars to work? You know, we've had solar panels and solar farms of different kinds for, for decades. Like why is it that now things are really working? And there's lots of really good answers for those um uh, to those questions. Um, and that's, that's really always been my thing is kind of shifting backwards and forwards, um, in time, thinking about technology. And, um, as I have, where all these things kind of end up really coming together for me is inside cities, you know, that's where it's really the action is at a, at a local level. And that's really led me to, uh, my current work, um, which is on an environmental justice leader uh, in Oakland as kind of this way of opening up um, post-war uh, urban history and sort of what a city is for now. You know, um, like my work on containers, which is a podcast you mentioned, it's really about ports and change in the global economy, um, which has really changed what a city needs to do. Cities used to be a place to make stuff and house the people who made stuff. And now um, the people make money inside a screen or people make stuff uh, in other countries and uh, outside of cities. So now, well, what's a city for that? <laughs> right. um, and that's kind of the central question of the book. Well, thank you again for joining us. It's great to have you on the, on the line, and we really appreciate your time. Alexis, if people want to uh, follow you and your work, where should they do that? Just go to The Atlantic. That's probably the, the best way. Or uh, they can see my newsletter and book project at just alexismadrigal.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on the big tent today, Alexis. We appreciate uh, appreciate your time. And uh, for you listeners, make sure that you tune in next Thursday at 4 p.m. We'll have another show for you then. And Alexis Thanks. will get a variety of School of Public Service swag delivered to him. Oh, over, Alexis, lucky the, you. One of the things our guests on the big tent get is the School of Public Service swag. I think we have a Frisbee and all kinds of great stuff that will be coming your way. I so. haven't even gotten a Frisbee <laughs> yet, Alexis, so you're a lucky guy. All right. Thanks for your time. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you. Really appreciate you being on the air.